Welcome to the Dear NICU Mama podcast. Our mission is to connect the past and the present NICU mom by bringing them out of isolation and into a sisterhood of women who can stand alongside each other as we heal and grow both in and out of the NICU. Our hope is that through interviews with trauma-informed medical and maternal mental health experts and vulnerable stories from NICU mamas themselves, that you would feel connected to the Dear NICU Mama Sisterhood around the world. So, whether your NICU journey was 50 years ago, or whether you find yourself in the NICU today, we hope that this podcast reminds you that you are not alone. Hi, mamas, and welcome back to the Dear NICU Mama podcast. It's your hosts, Martha and Ashley. Ashley, my best friend, <laughs> Ashley. Her name and is it's Ashley. your birthday, and it's your birthday. <laughs> I wouldn't I this is like the best thing I can think of doing on my birthday <laughs> last week we celebrated my birthday by doing a, an incredible volunteer event um mm-hmm. for Mother's Day and uh just a big shout out to all those women who participated because there mm-hmm. are close to 5,000 moms who will be getting Mother's Day cards from Dear Nikki Mama mm-hmm. I'm so proud yeah. of the sisterhood aren't you so wild I'm so proud and so honored to be a part of it it's so cool. And um, that, like I said, best way to celebrate my birthday. Uh, the the other honor we have today is to welcome back Allison Wolf, NICU mama <laughs> extraordinaire, uh, mother of two uh, of sweet baby Amos and Stevie. And we're so glad to have you back. Thank you so much for having me back. And happy birthday, Martha. <laughs> Thank you. I'm 100 years old. <laughs> and I feel 100 years old. Trust me. Yes, yes. Oh, man. I love it. Well, where we left off with Allison's story is we kind of came to this conclusion that there was way too much to try and do it into one single episode. <laughs> so, guys, buckle up because part two is pretty bonkers. Um, Hold on to your butts. Yeah, it was quite the, um, I think, uh, alliteration that's used often in the NICU community is roller coaster. Yeah. Um, I think that describes your situation pretty yes. well in part two. It is also something that is used a lot in the other big community that I am part of. Right. Yes. Oh, <laughs> so, man. yeah. Well, we are really excited to hear part two. And um, we kind of mentioned it in part one, but we've we've had the honor of kind of seeing your journey unfold from the very beginning. And I remember um, just seeing these updates that you were posting both in the Facebook group, but on your Instagram. And it's been quite a ride for you guys. So it- Sure. Has. <laughs> it's going to be really special. <laughs> to say the least. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm so excited to share this part of our story. I mean, it's a little like nerve wracking to say it all out loud, mm-hmm. but um, especially as like we come up on some pretty major anniversaries, mm-hmm. it's really exciting to share it. Yeah. Um, so I'll go ahead and just jump in yeah. where we kind of left off. Perfect. So um, once Amos was on CPAP and able to feed again, we had after his whole like neck scare dealing with the respiratory stuff like getting off of the vent we had like a really nice long chunk that was very quiet and like we got into a good routine of just coming to visit him he was just like growing and you know able to tolerate more and working towards other milestones um a lot of times during that time, I would come in at night, like even sometimes I'd put Stevie to bed and then I would come at night and it was just the, I really cherished that time. It was a really relaxing, mm-hmm. good bonding time. Um, he, you know, once we got him on, I think I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Like once he was able to have put clothes on and be swaddled, mm-hmm. then I could hold him and look at his face rather than just like, you know, and I always felt guilty. Like I should be doing skin to skin cause it's so important, but like I wanted to hold my baby <laughs> and, and look at him. Yeah. Um, you know, all those stupid mom guilt that we put on I ourselves. Um, and especially during that time, uh, his primaries worked at night a lot and I loved coming in and just chatting with them. Um, I call all of them the dream team. So hi to anyone from the dream team that's listening. And, um, they are just genuinely like all amazing nurses, but all people that I would be friends with in real life as well. They were, I just love chatting with them and just really like solidifying them as a part of our family. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, sharing a lot of cool milestones with them, like his first outfit, his first bath was just so great. Mm -hmm. Um, And during this time, we knew that, like, just 
little things that we thought for a long time were all just a part of the pre-made journey. So they were monitoring Amos's bilirubin levels, um, his direct and indirect bilirubin levels. So it's kind of hard to explain, but like, you know, you put your put under billy lights and you kind of think about that as your indirect or your total bilirubin. And that's kind of what helps bring it down. So his was high and they were monitoring that. And I remember at some point they talked about his poop color. Mm. So um, I remember them saying once something about clay colored stool. And in my mind at the time, I thought that meant like, you know, like pottery clay, like reddish colored. I was like, what? Like poop isn't clay colored. But what they mean is like white ish. Mm. Um, and his wasn't really clay colored. It was kind of light, but not, you know, super white. It wasn't like, I think the word is bucolic. I can't remember. I know way too many words that I shouldn't know now, <laughs> but, um, so, you know, that was another thing that was just, you know, there, the, all these little pieces of information were just floating around in the air and eventually they would all come to a head. Um, and he was on, this disgusting multivitamin, which is all the fat soluble vitamins because your liver processes and stores the fat soluble vitamins. So it was, um, ADEC. It is bright orange, Mm. smells awful, stains everything. And I am sure that my NICU mamas who have babies who have reflux will just give us right for me and everything in my house with this disgusting vitamin. So he was on um, ADEC to help bring up his vitamin levels as well. And he was also on a medication to help the bile pass through, Um, which all of these things we just thought like, oh, like, you know, like TPN can cause some liver issues. So we just thought it was just part of his preemie thing and that he would grow out of it. His bilirubin levels were slowly getting better by like very small amounts, but they were going in the right direction. So we weren't super worried about it. Right at this time, we were gearing up for like huge milestones, right? Trialing off the CPAP, starting to bottle, moving him to a crib. And I was like, all right, let's do this. Like, we are in the home stretch. Let's just like move forward and get this kid home. You know, I thought we were just going to like, I thought everything was going to move in a linear fashion at this point because we had gone through this crazy stuff in the beginning. And I thought, okay, like, we're good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Amos had a HIDA scan planned at Boston Children's right around 34 weeks. Um, So the whole time, children's hepatology had been following him because of his liver numbers and all that. So they wanted to do a HIDA scan, which is, um, when contrast is injected through IV and in interventional radiology, they watch it go through the liver into the gallbladder and through the bile ducts to see if there's any sort of issues there to check function. I was like, it wasn't even on my radar. I was like, okay, cool. Like I thought, okay, we'll do that. Get that over with, come back and do all of those things that I was very excited about. Mm -hmm. Like those, those big, big milestones. Um, and I was so not worried about it. And also like so close with his primary nurses that I didn't even go to the scan because he was, um, I think he, I can't remember if he was like under anesthesia for it or what, I don't, maybe not, but like there wasn't going to be much that I was going to be able to do. And his primaries felt such like family to me that I felt like, okay, like they're going to go with him. You know, there's really not much I can do. Like it might take a while. He might be sleepy afterward because he was on a med um, to help the contrast work and it made him really sleepy. So like, I'm just going to let him rest and recover. I'm not even going to bother him, you know, whatever. So he went for his first HIDA scan and it didn't go great. Um, they, so it, it's passive, right? It's Cause it's going through IV. So, um, it moved very slowly through and they could see that it wasn't, you know, was not filling up the gallbladder, was not passing through his liver. So two days later, they did a second HIDA scan. And I don't know why, but I still, like, wasn't super worried about it. Um, and there's this moment that sticks out in my mind because I was like, why? What are they looking for? Mm. You know, I had no clue. Um, what's the deal? Like, what are they looking for? And I remember um, 
one of his primary nurses we were talking to each other and she's like oh no they, you know they're checking for things like make sure and she said exactly like this and this moment plays over and over and in my head all the time she's like they're just checking for things like just make sure he doesn't have like i don't know biliary atresia because the thought of him having that was so like like we weren't even considering it it wasn't even like it wasn't part of any of our minds that that would be a possibility so he went for his second scan and um after his scan uh one of the doctors from one of the hepatologists from children's called me and in a very like casual nonchalant way had this discussion with me or just vomited a lot of information at me in a very just like not emotional way at all um like oh okay so his HIDA scan is concerning it's not showing that there's any the bile isn't passing through his liver um in all of his ultrasounds too his gallbladder was visible but very very small um you know, so, and she said all these things so quickly that I didn't even process it. She's like, so we're going to transfer him over to children's. We're going to plan on doing a procedure to directly look at the bile ducts and check to see um, if any is passing through. Uh, sometimes babies, it's rare, but we have this condition um, called biliary atresia where the bile ducts are blocked off. And bile cannot pass through the liver. If during this procedure they see that he has this, they will immediately do a major surgery to create a bile duct to help Mm. the bile pass through. And for 25% of babies, this is successful. For the rest, Mm. it buys them some time until they will need a liver transplant. Um, And... I can't remember if she said anything else, but it was like, I'm just like, I was in shock. Mm -hmm. And I'm the kind of person, like, I have so many conversations with doctors and whatever on the phone that I'm very, like, pleasant and, like, I don't show a lot of emotion when I'm talking to providers and stuff like that. I don't know why. It's just part of who I am. Like, okay. But I, I, like, ask some questions because I do want to know, like, okay, like, what, like, you know, does this, what? If he need, if he's going to need a liver transplant, like, what does that mean for his life? Yeah. Like, what is his life going to look like? Mm-hmm. And she was like, the way she answered me was very just kind of like, oh, like, you know, like, I can't remember even what she said, but I was so, like, I was just so, like, my head is, like, wanting to explode. Like, everything is ringing and nothing is, nothing is landing for me. Mm-hmm. So I just got all this information and now I'm completely overwhelmed. I don't even know what's happening. Like none of this was on my radar at all. So, you know, then I'm like, hang up and I'm at home and I'm like, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like what? Uh, and it did not click for me that what, when she said he was transferring over to children's, mm-hmm. that meant he was discharging from mm-hmm. our home NICU. And being fully transferred over to Boston Children's. Now, I am extremely lucky to live in a state with the best children's hospital in the world. But you do not want to need it. Right, right. (laughs) You don't want to need it because you know that, you know, at their NICU, that is where the more sick babies Mm -hmm. go. Things are more serious if you need to go to children's. So, and again, like, you know, I am being actively traumatized every single day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, the way I coped was having a routine, mm-hmm. having the, a place where we felt safe. Um, you know, like having our n- nurse family where I felt safe. Like this was his second home. It was our second home. Um, and now it was just completely being ripped away from me, yeah. from us. So it was, uh, I was out of control. I was like, and I know I posted in Danuki Mama at this point. I was just so angry. Yeah. I was crying all the time. I remember going in and I was like, what does this mean? Does this mean I'm never going to see any of you guys again? I'm never going to, you know, I'm like talking to these nurses. I remember going into the um, room once and washing all my pumping stuff. And I was just sobbing. And one of his primary nurses had come in to get something in a closet that was through that room. And she just 
stood with me and was just like, it's not fair. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, Mm -hmm. like it was, it it was devastating. Um, You know, it was absolutely devastating to, to experience that. Uh, And then, so eventually a couple days later, I think Amos transferred over to children's um, and at our, so it's like Hospital Hill in Boston, right? So there's like so many hospitals right next to each other. So it's literally across the street. <laughs> you could walk to it. But we had to take an ambulance, obviously. And he had to be like in the like transfer, isolate mm-hmm. and everything. And we, there was a nurse practitioner at our hospital who was also a nurse practitioner in the children's NICU. And she came over with us. Um, and our NICU was like quiet, huge windows in every room. We had a private room. It was relaxing mm-hmm. <laughs> in a sense, as much as it could be. Yeah. The Boston Children's NICU is um, terrifying to, you know, I'm, I know that a lot of Mickey moms who are listening to this know exactly what it's like to be in an open bay mm-hmm. NICU in, uh, you know, on a floor where there really wasn't a whole lot of natural light coming in there. Um, and again, this is, you know, babies that are in the Boston Children's NICU are there for a reason because mm-hmm. they need pretty substantial help. Um, so that's kind of, it's scary to see when you are also taking care of your baby and like trying not to like compare or wonder what's going to happen. Um, so luckily we were in a private room at first, which was like the intake room for a few days. Um, and my husband was like, listen, you guys, you guys stop telling these people that you don't want to be here because they're going to think that we hate them. (laughs) The whole time I was like, all right, so when can we go back? Mm -hmm. Like, when can we get this over with and go back? Like, what is the process here? Like, you know, I I don't even remember what I was saying to them, but I was so, I hated being there so Mm -hmm. much. I wanted to go back home so badly. I wanted to take him back home that I was just unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Um, That makes sense, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think what is interesting about, what what you're describing is I and I hope a lot of people can take it and understand it too is that you had done such a fantastic job of adjusting to an impossible scenario with Amos already so your window of tolerance was like like paper thin paper paper (laughs) thin nothing right because you already were using every ounce of your being to be awesome and there and fight for him yeah so I mean I think that's that's totally reasonable and also yeah I think it's fine that you said you didn't want to be there. I think that's great. I, I said it all the time. I, think I was wonderful. like, listen, you guys are super nice, but like, I don't want to yes. be here. Yeah. I want to go back. And the way I describe it is like, when he was at our home NICU, I was like, just above the water right. like this, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. just able to like say, okay, like I'm floating, right? And then now I am pulled mm-hmm. 20 feet under and I am trying so hard to get back. Can I ask a question quick? Because yes. I remember... Again, I don't know why, but I remember vividly, like, when you were posting in the group, like, we're making these changes. And do you feel like um, that is when – because your story is so unique. Like, we don't have a lot of transplant moms in our Mm -hmm. community. And is that where you started to really, like, understand, like, okay, I'm not just a NICU mom now. Like, I'm also entering – this new level or did that come at a different so i fought that you fought Mm -hmm. that with every Mm -hmm. fiber of my being i would not accept that this was a possibility Mm -hmm. i thought there is no way that i am going to have a 25 weeker who has gone through all of this stuff Mm -hmm. and now he's going to go through this separate thing too right absolutely not yeah i and like i was very stubborn about it I would not like allow myself to think of it as a possibility probably as a projection mechanism as well um and I was just like it's and you know you're not supposed to google you're not supposed to whatever but I was like he doesn't have this happening he doesn't have this happening he doesn't have this happening he doesn't have it it's not happening he's a preemie it's a preemie liver problem sure yeah you know, I'm looking up all these things. I'm like, maybe he has this, maybe he has that, maybe he has this. I'm looking up other, you know, preemie ex- liver experiences and trying to say, like, that's what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, so while he was there, he was supposed to have a procedure called a cholangiogram, which now he has had many of. Um, and 
now that I know what it is, it's like really not that scary. But to me back then, I of thought course, it, was like this, yeah. it was like this huge deal. So, um, well, the names are all kind of terrifying. Like, yeah, Polyangiogram. Right. Like, like... <laughs> uh, you know, whatever. I'm like, and they, they described it. I think somebody described it as like a minor surgery and like, what it is, is they're poking like a needle in. It's not, it's not. And they do it in, in interventional radiology. Yeah. It's not in the operating room. So the doctor's there. It was good to finally meet the hepatologists and talk to them and kind of get a little bit more of an understanding. So it's funny, like they kept coming in and looking at him and they always wanted to see his diapers and they came in and took lots of pictures of his poop. So, and they took him off of that orange medication, the vitamins for a little while to make sure that it wasn't that that was giving his poop some color. Mm -hmm. And they were very reassured by the color of his poop and also his labs. Like there were a few things that just did not line up with biliary atresia. So they were like, "Mm, maybe we don't need to do this cholangiogram. Let's watch you know, over the next couple of days and we'll decide. So, you know, again, this whole time I'm like stubborn, like we are not staying here. Also while we're there. So different NICUs are very different. So children's is like a little bit more, I don't know how to describe it. Like they're a little bit more aggressive with, um, uh, you know, like toning down respiratory settings and stuff like that. And I remember the nurse being like, let's get this kid. Like they put him on a cannula while we were there, um, which was exciting. And he went to room air actually Mm -hmm. while we were there. He came completely off Mm -hmm. of oxygen, which was amazing. He tried nursing for the first Mm -hmm. time while we were there, which is really special. I obviously did not want any of those things to happen there, but they did. And I was like, okay, like I'm going to, I'm going to soak this up anyway, the way that it is. Um, and I was so relieved when the doctors eventually decided he did not need the cholangiogram, but that they would do a biopsy and they would do some blood tests. Um, and then he could go back to Beth Israel. So it's like, okay, done. <laughs> like, cool. Like, let's get this over with and go back. So they did the biopsy. Um, he had to be reintubated for the biopsy and he was like very heavily sedated. And it was very difficult for me because um, he had just gone to room air mm-hmm. And it took him a long time to wake up again, essentially. Uh, He had to be transferred back to Beth Israel intubated, which was really emotional for me. I have a really sweet picture, uh, like a little craft, and then a note from one of his primary nurses. She, like, they just love us so much. She... Uh, that night she had him and her and the respiratory therapist decided to extubate him straight to CPAP because they felt that the tube was causing too many secretions and it was causing more problems and it was doing good. And she took a picture of him once he, you know, had his, um, I think he went on like RAM, right? So like the green one, um, which is so much better than that stupid mask. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, she took a picture of him and she wrote a note and said like, I just wanted you to see like, you're a little fighter. Like he's, he is awake. He's doing so well, you know, whatever. So we go back and now we were finally able to do all of these milestones, right? So we came back, we moved to our crib, we started bottling and this kid was just crushing bottles. It was like so exciting. We moved over to special care, which was awesome. Um, so it's the step down NICU. And we kind of just worked on feeding, worked on different things, moved towards, um, you know, discharge. It was hard at the end. And I'm sure you guys can resonate with that. Like this should be the easiest part, right? But when you're waiting for them to come home and they just keep spelling Mm. and you have to do another spell count. Mm. And we had a couple that were really devastating for me. Amos was supposed to come home on his due date. Um, and he spelled Mm. that day, which was just, There was a lot of stuff happening that day that was just hard. He had to do a swallow study, and I was worried that they were going to take him off of breast milk because if he needed it to be thickened, because at that age, he couldn't have it thickened. And I had been working so hard pumping, and like I just wanted to be able to nurse him. And if that was taken away from me, I was going to be just done. Um, But thankfully, he didn't need that, uh, and... You know, we finally got over the hump of 
the spells and we're like finally like okay he's going home and it was really emotional and just like it was wild to bring him home he was there for 110 days mm-hmm. um i made like my little baskets for his primary nurses and i'm sure i gave them too much stuff i know you're probably not supposed to give them <laughs> more than a certain amount but <laughs> i couldn't help myself um you know and we like we brought him home and i will say that Bringing him home did not feel like I thought it would feel. I was very excited to bring him home. And then once we got there, I was full of anxiety, mm-hmm. like just full of it. And uh, I think at the time I felt a lot of guilt and shame over missing the NICU. But now I understand, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because <clears throat> also we're still in a pandemic. I know we yeah, still are, yeah. but like... Uh, you know, this was part of the only way that I socialized with any other right. adults yeah. was going into the NICU every day yeah. and had being there in a place where, okay, like if this is happening, let's talk to the nurses in rounds tomorrow morning. We'll talk to the doctors. We'll get it figured out. <clears throat> and now you're just home and you have to do it yourself. And you've lost that like, um, level of just coordinated care. Mm-hmm. I remember reading from some people like, oh, like, it was just so great to finally bring our baby home. And it was just, it was difficult, but then it was bliss, right? And I wanted that so badly. But it was not for us. It was miserable. It was absolutely miserable. We were all miserable. Amos was miserable all the time. Uh, We didn't know why. And we would soon find out. We were miserable because we weren't getting any sleep. Um, You know, my daughter, now she's adjusting to a sibling, which is very difficult on a toddler who... It is a toddler in general, but also is dealing with her own trauma of the whole thing and mm-hmm. not being able to verbalize that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was just terrible. And also, we had all these question marks, right, yeah. about the liver issues. And we really thought that it was going to be this preemie thing he would grow out of. But once we got home, he was still followed by hepatology, and nobody could give us any answers, right? We were just like, what? What's happening? Because I don't think anybody really knew because it did not line up with biliary atresia at the time. Um, You know, we like went to a neuro appointment and I remember the doctor feeling him be like, has anybody felt his liver? I remember be like, what? Why? Mm -hmm. She's like, well, and I remember her saying, oh, settle. (laughs) But he was having a hepatology appointment in like a few days. I was like, oh, he's had, he has an appointment soon. Like they're going to check him out, feel it, whatever. And he was also getting increasingly more jaundice. Yeah. Which was, um, and I was paranoid about it. <laughs> I have so many pictures in my phone of like my hand next to his face. Mm. Me, like, like, is he really yellow? Are his eyes really yellow? Like, mm. what's happening? So he had <clears throat> labs drawn. And then almost a month later, in this month, a lot of things happened, right? Like, he stopped eating as much. Mm. And we didn't know why. Um, he got more miserable and he was becoming more yellow um there were a lot of things that were happening and the anxiety about it just was rising in me and I was like okay like what what's going on like what what happens here right and we when we went to his hepatology appointment I was really stressed about his bilirubin levels um that was like the big number that I really was looking at there are a lot of numbers to look at in this but those were the ones I focused on um, and like they were around his total was, I think around five and it kind of was hovering around there, like going up and down with his labs. And I remember his doctor saying like, yeah, we don't worry about that. If it was like 16, then maybe we would be having a different conversation. And at that appointment, that was the first time I heard the words transplant. Like we don't, and I remember the doctor saying like, we don't even need to have that conversation right now. Not a thing. A month later. He had labs and we went to a satellite facility. And so their results don't come in until night. And we took him for labs and I was stressed about it because I was like, okay, what is his bilirubin? Because he is so yellow Mm. and I know he is and I don't want him to be, but he is. I put Stevie to bed. I checked my phone and his total bilirubin was above 16. And it had to be that number because that's what they said. If it's 16, then, you know, we'll be worried about it. I just, like, fell to the floor. And I said to my husband, like, 
his Billy Rubin is 16. There is something wrong with him. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be a big deal. I call this day, it like lives in my memory as the bad labs, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was like a turning point. It was a catalyst of like, here we are not knowing what's going on, but he's okay. And now he's definitely not. Mm-hmm. And a lot of his other numbers were getting a lot worse too, which I didn't realize. And I called the on-call provider that night because I was like, yeah, what, what do we do? Mm-hmm. Like, this is crazy. And so um, he had repeat labs on the next Monday and an ultrasound. And then I can't remember exactly what they said, but like if they are worse or whatever, then we're going to be having this conversation, you know, but we also, so we'll have you do labs on Monday. And then I think like two days later, we had a scheduled clinic visit to come and see them as well and talk about it in person. So we went to do the labs in Boston and his ultrasound. Uh, and unfortunately his labs got a little bit worse, not a whole lot, but they got worse. And his ultrasound showed that his liver had a lot of cirrhosis. It also showed that he had some ascites, so fluid buildup in his abdomen as well. Another thing that is not something I've ever talked about because it's like, it's private, but it was like a huge thing. So I thought Amos had a hydrocele, which I don't know if anybody knows what that is, but like his testicles his scrotum was swollen Mm. huge and I thought it was like a hernia or just some extra fluid and um I chalked it up to that but it was because of the ascites in his abdomen Mm. was pushing into his scrotum so once we had the repeat labs and the ultrasound I am extremely angry during this time so scared crying all the time devastated. But then once we went back and had the repeat labs and I saw the results, I took those days to say, all right, we are going to be talking to them about a transplant. I know that's a, that that's what we're going to be doing. So I joined a Facebook group for liver transplant moms. I exposed myself to as much information as I could because I wanted to be prepared And I wanted to know what questions I should ask. And I wanted to just not be wallowing about it anymore because I thought, all right, I can't just say like, this isn't happening because now it's happening, right? Like maybe there's a small chance that they'll say something else, but like most likely this is what's going to happen. So he went for his appointment and I was like, so nervous (laughs) like shaking and I remember I have like a uh Instagram story saved somewhere that I sent to like my closest friends um and I remember saying like hey this little guy is 11 pounds he was not actually 11 pounds it was mostly his ascites and also his liver was heavy because of all the cirrhosis it just causes so much scarring it was so heavy um and I remember thinking that he was growing but he wasn't he wasn't gaining any weight uh he couldn't he couldn't process any of the fats in his formula he was also at this point on uh either 28 or 32 kcal Mm, so that's like a lot that's a lot so we came in sat across from them and they said it like okay Amos is going to need a liver transplant. And we're just like, okay. And I think, you know, that day, it wasn't the worst day, right? Like the worst day was maybe the bad labs because I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what it was going to mean. He could not have the Kasai procedure and Amos was too old. So it wasn't even an option. It was like, we're not even going to try and fix this. He needs a transplant. We didn't know when. And now we're being thrown all this information, right? So I'm like... Okay. And Ames was also, I, I wrote this down, but like he was on a level of vitamin D supplementation that when I went to pick it up at CVS, the pharmacist was like, uh, we just need to double check that this is the right dose. Cause it's like eight or 10 times the amount we would prescribe for an adult. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, yeah, like he needs it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's sick. Um, and he was, his vitamin D still wasn't in range. Wow. It still wasn't. Even when we were giving him that such a huge dose. And now we're having a conversation about transplant and we need to work on his transplant evaluation so that he can be listed. And they're giving us all this information. And in my like 
exposure to other biliary atresia. We didn't know. We still didn't know if it was biliary atresia, but it didn't matter because we knew he would need a transplant no matter what. Um, so in my exposure, I like, um, I actually found another mom randomly through a Facebook group for like, you know, there's like buy, sell, trade groups for kids clothes. And I remember her posting like, my son is going to be going for his liver transplant evaluation soon. He needs pants that will stretch to fit over his belly Mm. because his belly was really swollen. And I like stalked her (laughs) and found her Instagram. And she's like has journaled his entire journey from the beginning. And I read all of it. And so that was kind of like a way that I prepared myself. And once I knew he would need a transplant, I messaged her and was like, okay, I have been in denial about this for a long time. And now I'm not. Um, but her son had an NG tube, uh, cause he needed to grow. And so, and like all these different things, right. So I was exposing myself to all these potentials for what might happen while we were waiting for a transplant. I really, um, did not want Amos to need to be hospitalized before transplant. I wanted, I was hopeful for like a smooth ride up to listing and then transplant. And we also were like, when is he going to need this transplant? This was um, March. Mm. Yeah. And um, I didn't know when it was going to be. I thought maybe later in the summer, maybe sometime around August, September. I have no clue. When, and they couldn't really give us that answer as well. So we were home for about a week um, after that conversation. And his belly was getting worse, like more distended. And he was also eating way less. So his appetite was just gone. And we were struggling to feed him enough. I was getting worried about him being dehydrated. So finally I brought him into the ER, uh, for that, for fluids. And I knew that they would be placing an MG. So we came in and, um, one of his primary nurses came over from our old NICU and brought me breakfast and stayed with me for the scary things. Right. Which was just amazing. He, um, was admitted that day. And then that turned into a two week hospital stay Mm. because, um, his belly was so full of ascites. So I want you to picture a little baby. He's like 11 pounds, small preemie baby. His belly was swollen tight, like a basketball, his belly button, which did have a hernia, which, you know, is very common for preemies was as big I don't know if it was at that point, but it was like, it looked like a small clementine, Mm. so tight and swollen. His scrotum was also, his scrotum was so full of fluid that it pushed it down to his knees. Mm. It was that swollen. I would pick him up and think, I mean, it's like kind of funny, but also super sad. I would be holding his diaper and think that like he had a poop in his diaper, but no, Mm. that was his testicles and like he and like I couldn't I couldn't he couldn't like lay on me and also all of this is like affecting his breathing um and he's like this little like he's like um I always say it's like in Willy Wonka when that girl is like the blueberry right because he has the little stick arms and legs because he's also not gaining weight at all so now he's on 32 kcal with like MCT oil or whatever. And the nutritionist came in to measure his arm. And I remember the first time I heard the words like malnourished Mm. and it feels like it's your fault, right? right? When you're the mom, because you're supposed to be feeding your baby and help them grow. Like that's your job. Uh, I knew that like there was nothing I could do, but at the same time, like it really hurts. It stung. It hurt. Um, And so we had to get his ascites under control and he was on diuretics and we were trying to figure out like, what's the plan here to be able to send you guys home on some like oral diuretics so that he can pass this fluid. There's like all these things in balance, right? So like we have to be able to do this without damaging his kidneys too much and you know, whatever. He couldn't sleep laying on his back. I had to have him laying in a snuggle me on his side because of his belly. And we're also at this time doing Amos's transplant evaluation. 
we were supposed to do at that time anyway. We didn't know we were going to be in the hospital, right. but it kind of helped push it along more quickly. So Amos was in the hospital. We are being just showered and flooded with support. Um, people were sending us so much Venmo, so many like DoorDash gift cards. It was also getting coming to Stevie's birthday and I had put something. People were like, what can we do for Stevie's birthday? I was like, I don't know. Like, It would be great if you could like send her a card, send, send her a some stickers or something like that. Uh, and that turned into my breezeway being full of Amazon boxes of presents and books and toys and everything for Stevie, which was just so overwhelming and so beautiful. And she was just showered with so much love, which she deserved because now we're traumatizing her again. He's gone again came home she has a baby brother who she can't do anything with because he's sad all the time I remember she said one time I don't want a crying baby because mm. all he did was cry and he would just lay on his play mat and not do anything and I just felt so sad for her that she couldn't enjoy her brother and now he was gone again and she didn't really understand what was going on and so she was really just showered with love for her birthday which was so beautiful um and just amazing more than I could have ever done and also extremely overwhelming yeah. we have a bin in our basement that still has some stuff because I couldn't give her all of it so Amos was able to be discharged uh I can't remember if it was the day after her birthday or two days after and it was a Friday and he was listed on that day mm. as well um and he came home which was a little scary yeah. but I was glad to have him home he had his tube we're like figuring out the whole thing with you know doing the ng feeds at home uh his score I'm trying to remember I think it was 28 at first so what I mean is he has pediatric end-stage liver disease pilled score there essentially is no like top score the highest that they generally go to is 40. And obviously the higher your number, the sicker you are. It doesn't mean that like the person who's got the highest number is going to get a liver first because it doesn't work like that. Uh, you have to have an organ that is going to work for your body and your specific right. needs. So they, they describe it as like um, a car rental place. So somebody might come in and be like, it's just me. I can use any car you got on the lot. Let's, you know, I, I can just take that one. Great. And then you need some, have someone who needs one that's going to fit this many people. And like, you know, they need something more specific. So even if they were there first, they might be waiting longer for that yeah. car. So that was a way to kind of help us understand, you know, this process of waiting for a donor liver transplantation what's kind of amazing same with kidney transplantation is that a living donor can donate mm -hmm. part of their liver and it will regenerate in both the recipient so, and the donor crazy. which is crazy oh and i was like what the heck if a liver can do that why can't it just fix itself? Yes. Yeah, right. What is wrong great with this? Question. And they're like, actually, that's a great question. It's something that people are trying to figure out. So, you know, people, you have to go through a process of getting tested to know if you're a good match for the recipient. And um, I was automatically not a good match. I mean, I'm not the right blood type anyway, but because I had liver disease of pregnancy with Stevie, I wasn't going to be an option. Um, Cameron was also not the right blood type. So, there's different things that you need. So, so many people also were submitting an application to be Amos's living donor, which was, there's no mm -hmm. words to describe how that feels. Right. It's very, it's a very complicated feeling. Um, I don't, it's, it's, there's so much that goes into that. Thinking about somebody you know, or somebody you don't, there were random people who would message me and say like, hey. I filled out this application because I'm this blood type and I think I might be a good match for your son. I was like, hmm. okay. Because you're also putting yourself in a major surgery. It's not like it's not risky. Yeah. It's much less risky for um, adult to baby, but it's still a huge deal. So um, Amos was home for about a week. All of these things are happening, right? He's listed. 
We're trying to figure out this living donor process because hopefully that means that he can get a liver sooner. When he was home, I did not feel safe with him being home because I didn't know. He had labs every day in the hospital. He's monitored all the time. And, you know, he started like having a more difficult time breathing because his belly was getting so big again and we couldn't manage it at home. So we brought him back because of that. And when he was admitted that time, he eventually had to stay until transplant, Mm -hmm. which was very difficult. But at the same time, I wouldn't have wanted to take him home. Right, yeah. I needed needed him to be there Mm -hmm. because it was too much. Mm -hmm. Something we didn't know at home was that his blood sugar was crazy low, (laughs) which is a symptom of end-stage liver failure. Um, So he was put on 24-hour feeds through the NG tube. But now we're also managing his fluids because we could not control the ascites. They were, it was out of control. He was bright yellow. And I do have pictures of that. His belly was veiny as well because he had, um, he had portal hypertension. His belly button's huge. It looks like you could just pop it anytime. Again, his scrotum was like so swollen. It looks so painful. It was just terrible. His labs were getting worse and worse. And at this time, I became much more scared of losing him. I wasn't, I didn't think about that because I thought, okay, even though this sucks, like we have an answer, we know what's going to help him. Um, And there are people waiting for organ transplants all the time who don't get one and they die. It happens all the time. It's not something I would let myself think about, but I started to get more afraid of it because, you know, you kind of like watch the doctors and how they're like their demeanor and everything. And I felt like they were getting more and more serious and concerned. So I came home and I remember just calling the doctor because I was so paranoid. I was so afraid. And I don't even really know why I needed to ask this because I knew what the answer would be, but I just had to say it out loud. I was like, we're not just going to like let him die. Right. And I'm, and she couldn't tell me no, <laughs> you know, because you never know. Sometimes the liver just stops working and then, and you don't know when that will happen. There's oftentimes not an indicator beforehand of just complete liver failure. And then things are very dire. And now you are searching for any liver you can get to save this baby. And I was so afraid of that happening. Uh, one day I was with Amos and I was just holding him and just sobbing because mm. I was so afraid that I was going to lose him. And um, I remember one of my favorite transplant nurses was there that day. And she tried to reassure me, but at the same time she was like, you know, we will tell you. <laughs> you're, you're not going to just not know. Like we're here too. Because they see this, right? They see it happen. And uh, I was just terrified. Another thing is that we also found out through Amos's transplant evaluation through an MRI that a living donor was not a good option for him mm-hmm. because of the size of his vessels. They also can't take as much vessels from a living donor as they can from a deceased donor. So Living donor wasn't not an option, but it also wasn't a good option. And it could potentially cause more problems in the end, which was so scary. You don't want that. You want the best thing for them. Now we're looking for a deceased donor for a very small baby, which was another huge thing, to find the right size liver that would fit inside his tiny body. So once we found out that a living donor wasn't a good option, we were like a lot more scared and stressed because it's the deceased donor process is just it it's very different and it's a little um it's so you get a donor offer right so the process of it is the doctor calls you and they say we have a liver and now that means that the surgeon might need to get on a plane or a helicopter and fly to wherever it is where this liver is they need to look at it themselves before deciding whether or not 
it is a good match for your child. We're just every day trying to not be incredibly just overwhelmed with anxiety and just, you know, being realistic while also being very hopeful at the same time. I just kind of focused on what I hoped his life would be like after transplant. And I have a little like journal entry. I think I posted it on my Instagram. Something I wrote that really brought me a lot of comfort was just saying someday I will do all of these things. And when I read it, all of those things are very simple. Mm -hmm. Like just to feel like, I remember one of them was just like to watch your soft belly rise and fall while you're breathing Mm. because his belly was so tight he was thankfully in a much more stable place so we were no longer in this like I was no longer so afraid that at any moment you know his liver was going to go into complete failure um and one of his doctors who's one of my favorite of his doctors was like you know on the outside he looks pretty good, but on the inside, uh, not so much because <laughs> his labs were still consistently getting worse. I think the worst, the highest that his bilirubin got was like 23 or something like that. This is like, that's really high. <laughs> that's very and high. And what's normal? Um, that's like a normal bilirubin. Normal is point between like point zero and like point six or something like that. Oh. 0.6. Like that. that's normal. So he was thankfully much more stable and we were just so hopeful that this offer would come while he was in this stable place. Like, okay, please just let this organ offer come while he's stable. Every day was just finding a way to keep him comfortable while he's getting sicker and sicker. So one day uh, on the 16th of May, we got our first organ offer. So I was at home and uh, it was six o'clock in the morning and the hospital called and I answered it right away because I think I knew that that's what it was going to be. And they said, okay, we have an offer um, and, you know, we're going to do all these things and whatever. So uh, I came in and I waited all day with Amos and they give you like a time for like, this is a potential time for surgery. And then we're waiting, waiting, waiting. That time kind of comes and goes. Nobody's saying anything. Um, the whole day went by. And I think around 9 p.m. we found out that it wasn't a good option, which was very discouraging and disappointing. However, at the same in the same breath, the doctor said, but there might be another offer in the morning. So they already knew about a potential second offer. Um and I was like, oh, okay. And I tried to just not think about it because I think I got myself too excited about the first one and I was anticipating too much and then it was really disappointing. So when the second potential offer came along, I was like, all right, I'm just going to distract myself and not think about it. The surgeon um, actually came in. He must have been on the flight because he came in super late and just like, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm like sleeping on the bench. He's like, hey, like, I'm sorry. I just, I saw it and it just wasn't right for him, which sucks, but that's what you want, right? (laughs) Like you want them to want the best option for your kid. Um, You know, so you're thankful for that at the same time, like being disappointed. And then he mentioned something about a potential second offer and then I just went to sleep. So the next morning I get that second call that there is a second offer and potentially Amos would be going into surgery at noon. And that's so fast. I, right. That's and that's how it happens. Is it's and very how fast. many weeks between his like diagnosis, like that conversation where they said, Yep, yep. he's gonna have a liver transplant and the transplant. Right. So that that happened right around March. I should know all of this, uh, what the dates are. So that was at the end of March. And this is now May seventeenth. Six weeks ish. Uh, wow. right. And it was just wild. So he also, during that time, had a second hospitalization until transplant. They um, got exception points for him. So oftentimes you'll have your natural PEL score. But if you've got other stuff going on that makes it more urgent, they can petition to get your score higher. So for different reasons, I can't remember exactly what, but maybe part of it was the living donor thing and some other stuff that was happening with him. I can't remember exactly what but they petitioned and got his score up to 40. So I think we waited 
a week or two after his score was increased to 40 until transplant. So that day, May 17th, I think I watched Outlander all morning <laughs> just to distract myself, like, and not think about it. And I just, like, held him and took selfies and just tried not to think about it at all. And then all of a sudden, the nurses are coming and they're like, okay, he's going down. And it's not happening until it's actually happening. So I was also like, okay, like, because you could still also get down there and then they could say, like, actually, no, like, we're not going to do it, which is so nerve-wracking. But, and I was like, I just was had this rush of emotions, you know, we put him on the bed and they wheeled him down and he always loves the trip down to a procedure on the bed. And I remember him just looking around, he had balloons on the edge of his bed and I was just so nervous and so excited, took some pictures of him going downstairs, getting wheeled down and finally get into pre-op and, um, you know, the pre-op nurse is asking me questions and I remember her saying like, and what are you here for? And I couldn't even say it because mm-hmm. I was so just like this rush of relief is just pouring over me that now this is happening. Now he's getting his transplant. We don't have to think about waiting for that anymore. And I didn't even say it. I just cried. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, yeah. I got it. Like she knew, they knew like it was all, you know, and I called my husband. He came in. I think he came in right after they wheeled Amos back. And it's a very long surgery. So it's, you know, seven to 10 plus hours. It's, it is intense. So we checked in with a surgical liaison. They called us to give us updates. And a lot of transplant moms were like, surgery transplant day is so scary. Like take care of yourself. It was just the scariest day of my life. However, for Cameron and I, we are just elated that this is happening. We didn't stay at the hospital because we knew it was going to be a long time. We're in the middle of the city. We're close to a lot of restaurants and stuff like that. We walked and ate on a patio of a nice restaurant nearby. We just were celebrating that this was happening. They called us to give us some updates. Everything was going well. Um, and I, I think in total... The surgery for him was between seven and eight hours. And then we went back to the hospital and waited for the surgeon to come and talk to us. And um, I just love his surgeon so much. He's the coolest guy. He's like super chill. So he explained to us how it went. And we're like, can we see a picture of his old liver? Because you don't know, like, what does it look like? What is this thing that is causing all these problems? And he was like, yeah, sure. I took one. I'll send it to you. And he showed us this picture of his old liver and it is, it's shocking. It's black hmm. and dark red and it looks like a burnt piece of steak and it's bumpy. I think it weighed, um, four pounds, oh my gosh. which is a lot. Hmm. Yeah. And it was wild. And then he also showed us a picture, which some people wouldn't want to see, but we wanted to see it. And there's no wrong, right or wrong answer there. But he showed us a picture of them putting the new liver in. And it's a little, it's a little bit much. I did not ask for this picture to be sent to me because Amos's intestines are out oh on top gosh. of his belly while they're putting the new liver in. But it's this like beautiful, pink, healthy mm. liver that they put in. And um, the other thing that's really just, it's such a huge part, is that Amos received a full organ size match. And so we knew, you don't know anything about the donor. That's very private. It's kept extremely private. They don't tell you anything. I mean, you know, certain things like um, if the donor had different like CMV or EBV positive, you need to know those sort of things for like their health in general, but you don't know any personal details about the donor. But there's no way to not know that his donor was a baby because it, the liver fit inside him, which was just, it's a, it's a very complicated um, feeling to think about, you know, on this day that is just one of the most relieving and joyful days of our lives as somebody else lost their baby. And it's, it's just, there's no way to describe what that feels like, um, you and I think for myself and other transplant moms would agree that you hold the grief 
for your donor family in equal standing with how happy you are for your child mm-hmm. and how relieved you are that they're here. And you can't measure the amount of thankfulness that comes from knowing somebody else said yes on their worst day, mm-hmm. in their worst time that they said yes, and that your child is alive because of that. And so, you know, we don't, no one said to us that his donor was a baby, but we knew he was tiny, right? <laughs> he was tiny. They were able to close. So a lot of times when a kid will get a transplant, often they will have to leave part of the abdomen open so that the belly can grow around the liver if it was too big. They were able to, able to close. Mm. Uh, so, you know, then we finally were able to go and see him in ICU. And I remember when we got in there and he's like, it's just the craziest thing, right? Like he's laying there, he's completely knocked out. He actually was able to be extubated mm. in the OR, which is something they're very aggressive about, about especially with transplantations. They want to extubate them as quickly as possible if, if they can. And he's got like a line in each foot. He's got a pick line and he had a line in his neck, a central line in his neck. He's got, you know, uh, a tube in his nose that's relieving pressure and getting rid of like stuff in the belly and stuff like that. I can't remember exactly, but you know, it's shocking to see, but we were so relaxed and the doctor was like, are you guys like in the medical field or like what's going on here? Cause you were very calm. And I think because of all of our exposure of seeing Amos, mm-hmm. not exactly this way, but surrounded by so much medical equipment we were not shocked by it however when I look back at that picture today I am shocked by it um but we were just so happy that we were now on this other side right it was just like okay that part is over and we didn't know what the rest of the part the rest of this was going to look like but we at least knew that the biggest thing that needed to happen was done and that we didn't have to worry anymore about waiting for it to come. Allison, there's just no there's just no words. It's really hard to There's just no words. <laughs> it's crazy. It's just like it's such a wild world and there's just so much involved in it and the emotions and like it feels like a you're in this crazy like action movie mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. all these things are happening so quickly and it's you know super intense and yeah. like mm-hmm. all of these wild emotions and the other thing that's really difficult which I mean I can explain it when we talk again but um like is that you don't know the circumstances of how the donor passed and that's really complicated um you know eventually you're able to write them a letter and that gets sent and it's hard to write that letter because you don't know who you're writing Mm -hmm. to and you don't know what you're writing about um but yeah I keep saying like there's nothing to say there's no way to and like put all of the emotions and thoughts that go along with that in to anything you just can't like you can't fully process it or like compartmentalize it it's just a huge mess of feelings and thoughts and all of that right Hmm. wow friend that's so much well uh this is a monumental day in the dear nikki mama podcast because plot twist this is actually going to be three episodes (laughs) um this is our first ever three-part story because it merits it um you know, in reality, every Nikki mom story could probably be 10 parts, right? Like, how detailed do we want to get? But especially in this situation, um, we want to make sure that there's room for talking about Amos's, you know, recovery and how he's thriving today and what it means to you, Allison, to be a transplant mom. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, you talked about holding that duality very closely. And so, yeah, um, we're going to actually end part two here to merit that time for part three. And so um, once again, Allison, thank you so much for sharing. Um, we know the 
the courage and emotional energy it takes to relive a lot of those, like you said, um, hard days or what did you call it? Lab days? Bad lab days? Is that what you called it? The bad labs. And uh, we know (laughs) that it's not just table conversation, right? Those are real memories that happen to you with photos to back it up, you know? And so we just want to thank you for revisiting those bad lab days and all of the days that followed. And um, we're really excited for part three because Amos is thriving today. And um, because of, you know, it's, just, it's amazing. There's no words. There's just no words. We are just so grateful for the sisterhood of amazing women around the world. And um, next week we will be here for a fun Mother's Day episode. So um, thank you guys for being here. And um, we'll catch you guys next week. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Dear Nikki Mama podcast. If you loved this episode, we'd be so grateful for a review on any of the podcast platforms. And we'd love to continue connecting with you via our social media pages or a private Facebook group. And ultimately, Nikki Mama, welcome to the sisterhood.